It's the end of the world as we know it, and I feel fine. That's great, it starts with an earthquake, birds, snakes, and aeroplanes. Many fruits are not afraid. I have a machine, listen to yourself, the world with its own needs. Let me bring your own head, beat it up, and I've seen that no sheets. The ladder from the platter with the fear fight down, I fire in a fire, with the system of the gang, the government for hiring the combat site. But you wasn't coming in a hurry, leave the jury, get down your neck. Welcome to the Doom and Bloom Hour with medical preparedness experts, Dr. Bones and Nurse Amy. Your source for information on how to succeed if everything else fails. And now, your hosts, Dr. Bones and Nurse Amy. dark heart of the city, a mysterious figure known as Dr. Bones. That's right, ladies and gentlemen, we are yes. the jungle dark hearters. <laughs> or something like that. The hearted dark jungle How, how about bone. if we're doom? And bloom. This, then this is, that's good because this is the hour of doom. And Bloom. Oh. I had mixed it up for you. I well, was doing the Doom. Well, you don't need, I don't need any help to get mixed up because I am <laughs> totally mixed up as it is. <laughs> Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to the Doom and Bloom Survival Medicine Hour, a powerful paragon of prescience in a putrid world. <laughs> I'm Joe Alden, MD, also known as Dr. Bones of doomandbloom.net, where you'll find over a thousand posts, videos, and podcasts on medical preparedness for any disaster. And I'm Amy Alton. I'm an advanced registered nurse practitioner and a certified nurse midwife. And I am also known as Nurse Amy. That's right. And together we are the medical matrimony. We are the prodigious pair, the queen and the codger. We are here. To help you keep it together, even if everything else falls apart. Friends and neighbors, have you been injured in an accident? With a squirrel, a squirrel? Well, our attorney says, don't call me. Call Dr. Bones and Nurse Amy and listen to this. All information given and opinions voiced on Dr. Bones and Nurse Amy's Survival Medicine Hour are for entertainment purposes only and do not represent medical advice for anything other than post-apocalyptic settings. No contract Ooh. or provider-patient relationship exists or is implied between the hosts and listeners. Dr. Bones and Nursing Me strongly urge their audience to seek modern and standard medical care whenever and wherever it is available. Ah, modern medicine, a miracle of our time. But what happens in times of trouble when the ambulance is not around the corner, when the rescue helicopter is not on the horizon? Somebody's got to keep their loved ones healthy, and that someone might just have to be you. So show the world that you've got more sense than the Lord gave a sack of socks 
and get and <laughs> get some training and ab- I thought that was a good one. Sack of socks <laughs> and get some training and absorb some education. And while you're at it, get some supplies and maybe a quality medical kit to go along with all that knowledge. And what better place to get it? Shameless plug than the lovely Nurse Amy's entire line of often imitated, never equaled medical kits at store.doomandbloom.net. They'll help you deal with medical issues you'll face in any disaster, and they're designed by an honest-to-gosh medical doctor and an advanced registered nurse practitioner. Compare our kits for contents, quality, cost, gosh, with anyone else's stuff, and ask people that have bought one. Just ask anyone who's ever bought one, and you'll agree our kits are the ones you should have in your medical storage. Our kits are approved for your health savings account, too. That's important. Oh, by the way, we do have a testimonials page if you would like to. Yes. Check that out on the website at store.doomandbloom.net, and you'll see what other people say about our kids. Hey, you know what? We learn as much from you as you do from us. Sad but painfully obvious. <laughs> so connect with the geezer and the goddess and cast some pearls of wisdom at us. It's easy, and here's Nurse Amy to tell you how. Yes, you can contact us anytime by email at dr, that's dr for doctor, bones, podcast at AOL.com. Find us on Facebook at Doom and Bloom. You can also find us on Facebook at our group, Survival of Medicine, Dr. Bones and Nurse Amy. Follow us on Twitter at Prepper Show. Now, it's really funny. We've mentioned this several times on our podcast. Why did we do at Prepper Show? Well, uh, who remembers, really, back then? But I did look for... At Doom and Bloom, and there is somebody who took it in 2010. So it is before us. It is very possible that we we had the goal of doing Doom and Bloom, but somebody else took it. Right. Well, prepper show on Twitter. So of course we were doing prepper preparedness, and we were doing a show that was our main thing back then. We didn't have a store. We didn't have a book. And who would know Doom and Bloom back then? It was very strange. So so go figure. Now I know why we don't have at Doom and Bloom. So our next best was. at Prepper Show. Right. So we have to... So that's Twitter. We have to do a black op and eliminate, with extreme prejudice, the guy that's got doom and bloom. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, he doesn't have too many followers. I wonder if he'd be willing... I don't know. Maybe he'll trade with us or yeah, something. I don't yeah, know. Yeah. That's all right. Um, we can do a doom and bloom. I think you're limited on letters. I was going to say doom and bloom two or something. Oh, the real. (laughs) How about at at real doom and bloom? Oh my God, that's probably way too many letters. (laughs) Anyway, let's see what else I got for you. Oh, don't forget our YouTube YouTube channel. channel, Yes. Go ahead. That's a Dr. Bones Nurse Amy Dr. Bones Nurse Amy channel, and our other podcast, all about current events, is American Survival Radio. Now broadcast from several land-based radio stations throughout the U.S. of A. And this show is broadcast. From a lot of different networks. Thank you guys, especially Prepper Broadcasting Network, for carrying our show. Also, KYH, KYAH Radio in Utah. Sound like you were saying something else. Yes, KYH. <laughs> I'm glad you fixed that. <laughs> I did indeed. KYH Radio in Utah. These are the folks that we love to talk to, and thank you so much. We're here to entertain and educate. That is, edutain you. So here goes. A boy in Idaho is recovering after contracting, guess what, the plague, the first human case in the state in more than two decades, according to health officials. The spokesman for the Idaho Central District Health Department said that the child is now back home in Elmore County and doing well after being treated with antibiotics in the hospital. The kid became ill last month and health authorities uh, received 
laboratory confirmation that he had indeed bubonic plague. My gosh, where the hell did that come from? Well, I'll tell you. Here's a modern history of the plague in the United States. Plague was first introduced in about 1900 by rat-infested steamships that sailed from places like Asia to our western ports. Epidemics occurred in port cities at the time, and the last urban plague epidemic in the United States actually occurred in places like Los Angeles, and that was in about 1924 or so. Plague then spread from urban rats to rural rodent species and became entrenched in many areas of the western United States. Since that time, by the way, plague has occurred as scattered cases in rural areas have become a rural thing. Most human cases in the U.S. occur in places like New Mexico, Arizona, southern Colorado, and also in places like California and southern Oregon and far western Nevada. These are sort of regions where there have been a number of cases. As a matter of fact, in recent decades, an average of seven human plague cases a year have been reported. Plague has occurred in people in all ages from infants up to age 96. Wow. Though 50% of cases seem to occur in people that are relatively young, from 12 years old to about 45. It occurs in both men and women, although it's slightly more common than men, probably because they hang out and do outdoor activities maybe a little more often than women do. Uh, and of course, they are exposed to the vermin that put them at higher risk. So that's how the oh, Idaho kid wound up getting the plague. But really, do you know what the plague is in the first place? Plague is a highly infectious disease. I'll bet you know that. That's caused by the bacteria Yersinia pestis. Yersinia pestis. Now, this bacterium is found in fleas that in infest rats and other rodents. The infection is transmitted from animal to animal or animal to human when infected fleas jump on and bite a new host. Once established, there are different forms of plague that can be spread by air droplets, and that's why it's really dangerous because it can be spread by coughs, it can be spread by the blood, by blood products, can be spread even just by contact with contaminated water or food. Now, you may not have heard of the Black Death, or you may have, in the 14th century A.D., but there have been a lot of different plague epidemics over the ages. The Justinian Plague in 541, a thousand years before the, the one in the 14th century, killed 25 million people in just a few years. In modern times, there are outbreaks too. A plague outbreak in 1894 in Hong Kong killed about 10 million people over the course of 20 years, and it was during this epidemic that they actually first found out that the bacterium Yersinia pestis was identified as the culprit, and that it came from the fleas in rats, which was very important. There are different types of plague. The symptoms of plague depend on the type. Bubonic plague, I guess, is the most common, and that causes fevers, chills, and other flu-like symptoms, and then infects lymph nodes, goes different places. Uh, an accumulation of bacteria, blood, and pus in these structures give rise to these painful swollen lumps, look a little bit like boils, except that they're blackish, blackish blue, because of some bleeding that occurs within them, sort of bruising. And that you can find them mostly in the armpits, in the groin, and in the neck area. Now, there are other symptoms that include vomiting blood, gastrointestinal issues, breathing difficulty, seizures, gangrene in the extremities, wow, this is bad stuff. You can see why it was such a killer back in the day. And untreated, you wind up going into a coma and eventually death 
occurs in about a week to 10 days. Now, there's an even worse kind called pneumonic plague, and pneumonic plague affects the lungs. If you can't breathe, obviously, you're going to have a very short course to your disease, and this develops in people that have bubonic plague or who just breathe in infected air droplets. The patient begins to cough up blood, which is known as hemoptysis, when you cough up blood, and develops chest pain and shortness of breath. And if untreated, you're dead within 24 hours or, or maybe 48 hours at the most. There's also septicemic plague, which uh, the bacteria of plague passes from the buboes, the infected lymph nodes, into the bloodstream or may directly enter the body through an open wound. Besides fever and other general symptoms, you may notice that blood clotting factors wind up becoming depleted with this particular type of plague, septicemic plague, and it can cause spontaneous and unstoppable bleeding into the skin, the lungs, the kidneys, and other organs. That, as you know, is pretty bad, and that's one of the things that occurred to people who had Ebola, too. So you can see that this is certainly on the level of any other epidemic or pandemic deadly disease. Of course, untreated plague can be rapidly fatal, so you got to diagnose it and treat it early if you're going to have people actually survive. It's not hard to diagnose from the presence of these infected uh, lymph glands, the buboes, but pneumonic plague can be confused with a lot of different things. Matter of fact, there was a, a patient uh, in, in a school bus in Madagascar where, where they had an epidemic a couple of years ago. That was a guy who just was originally thought to have malaria, which is something that is all over the place down there, and they totally missed it for a period of time. So what you guys have to know out there, if you're going to be the medic, you need to have a very high index of suspicion for things that are maybe not very common today, but would be very common if we wound up going south because of some major disaster. The fact that plague is caused by bacteria, luckily, makes it susceptible to the early use of certain medicines like antibiotics. Antibiotics combined with hydration, for example, are an effective treatment against plague if patients are diagnosed in time. And the type of antibiotics you would have would be tetracycline, doxycycline, cipro, ciprofloxacin, these are good choices for about a seven-day course of therapy. And as, as you know, I recommend that everybody have some doxycycline, which you can find as bird biotic. They no longer come in capsules. I think they come in packets of powder. But the powder is doled out in uh, human dosages. 100 milligrams is the typical human dose. You would take it twice a day for a good week uh, to deal with an early case of the plague. And you probably would have good success with that. Of course, you can institute policies to decrease the chance of plague and many other infectious diseases. Remember, you're going to be in charge of keeping people healthy, so you may have to actually tell people to do this or do that so that they can prevent becoming victims. And preventive measure, measures would include things like advising group members to take precautions against flea bites. You can control fleas by applying uh, insecticides in either dust or spray form. Uh, by taking care when handling animal carcasses, sometimes you'll find fleas on dead animals that are just itching haha, to get on a new host. You want to avoid unprotected contact with infected tissues like buboes. You want to be very careful. Remember, gloves, gloves, gloves. you got to have a, a big supply of gloves if you're going to be the medic. 
not to mention masks because there's going to be transmission of this disease by coughs and sneezes of patients, especially those with pneumonic plague. You definitely don't want to, get, want to have that. So gloves, masks, maybe even aprons in the sick room. These are going to be very, very important. You want to isolate sick patients, remember, from common areas where other people hang out, such as places where the food is prepared or the water is sterilized so you don't infect other people with air droplets. Of course, if some people don't survive their cases of the plague, you want to ensure safe burial practices and appropriate disposal of human waste. In Madagascar, they actually dig up the bodies of people after a year, and they actually have a festival in which they have a feast, and they have the bones uh, there. They wrap them, they unwrap them, and then they rewrap them, I guess, in fresh cloth. That's one of their customs there, which, of course, as you can imagine, may not be the healthiest thing for them. Eliminating rodents, of course, from areas where humans contact them, well, that is going to be maybe the biggest thing you can do to eliminate your chances of getting the plague. And you'll see all sorts of articles on rodent control on our website at doomandbloom.net and also videos. I put up a couple of videos a few months ago on that exact same subject. Vaccines, by the way, not very effective in preventing plague outbreaks. So that is something that is very important to know that you've got to treat with antibiotics. That means you have to have a good supply of them. The ones that I mentioned, doxycycline, tetracycline, and uh, ciprofloxacin will be effective against the plague. So that's a 411 on plague and what to do if you're the family medic in tough times. But you know, I want to step back a little bit. Let's talk a little bit generally about infection. Let's talk about it in general so that we know a little, uh, give, give you a nice basic fund of knowledge. Now, and what is an infection? An infection is defined as the invasion of the body by certain organisms, microscopic organisms in most cases. Uh, a, patholog- a pathogen is a disease-causing organism. So you hear me talking about an infection caused by a pathogen. The term is usually used to describe a microbe of some sort. Microscopic germs cause injuries to tissue in a lot of different ways, but most often by producing toxic substances that damage the cells of the body. Now, before we give every microorganism a bad name, it's important to know that they are not all pathogenic. As a matter of fact, some are very beneficial, even necessary for human life, such as many intestinal bacteria that help you digest your food. Now, pathogens are often caused, uh, carried rather, by vectors from the Latin word vector, one who carries. By the way, thanks to uh, the reader who corrected my poor Latin grammar, I said vectus was one who carries. It actually means one who is carried. So the word is vector, and it's actually the same word in English. It means one who carries. Uh, these are humans and animals or even microbes that carry and transmit a pathogen, a disease-causing organism, to other people or other hosts. A vector does not have to be ill to carry a disease. Matter of fact, a mosquito can carry the organism that causes malaria in humans, but never gets sick from it. Another example of a disease vector was a domestic servant that you may have heard of called Typhoid Mary. About 100 years ago, she carried typhoid fever another pandemic disease, to many people at homes where she worked as a domestic servant, and she never felt sick herself. As a matter of fact, she was 
in various different households and killed people in different households. I guess she just wanted to make a living. I don't think she intentionally wanted them to die, but she did wind up killing a few people as a result of her presence, just her presence in the house and being involved with food and things like that. Now, the elimination of a vector from the environment, in other words, if you give Mary the pink slip and fire her, terminate her employment, that usually ends the outbreak of disease. Now, there are a number of different disease-causing organisms, pathogens, that cause infectious disease. Well, the one we hear most about is bacteria, right? By the way, the word bacteria is the plural form. A single one is known as a bacterium. Bacteria were among the first life forms on Earth, and they are present everywhere from the soil to the bottom of the ocean to the inside of your body. Matter of fact, they may even exist on Mars if you look at some of the most recent data. If you took the entire population of bacteria on the planet, they probably would have a mass about equal to the entire plant and animal population of the world combined. As a matter of fact, if you look at it, they, if you looked at them from a numerical standpoint, they far outnumber the, co- the combination of every other plant and animal, animal in the world. Bacteria have a number of shapes. They can be spheres. They can be rods. Um, or cylindrical looking, they can be spirals, all sorts of different things. Syphilis, for example, is a spiral type bacteria. And when bacteria reach a certain size, they reproduce by simply splitting in two, a process called binary fission. Now, many bacteria are actually good guys. Remember, though, that some are pathogens and and cause disease, things like cholera, syphilis, anthrax, leprosy, bubonic plague, wow, the most common fatal bacterial diseases affect the lungs. Tuberculosis alone kills about 2 million people a year, even today, although mostly those occur in underdeveloped countries. Now, there are many different types of bacteria. Most bacteria don't need to enter the host cells to reproduce. They do just fine in, for example, your blood. But there is a subgroup of bacteria called rickettsia that does depend on entering and growing within a host cell and then reproducing as a result. Rickettsia are the cause of things like Rocky Mountain spotted fever, typhus, a number of other infectious diseases. Rickettsia, however, do not cause rickets, which is a deformity of long bones in young children. That's a result of a vitamin D deficiency. Although many bacteria may become resistant to certain antibiotics, they usually can be killed by them. And it's just that different antibi- different bacteria are sensitive to different antibiotics. We talked a little bit about an antibiotic called doxycycline last week, and we're going to talk about another one that I'll talk that I'll bring up in just a few minutes. Now, there's viruses; those are another type of pathogen that kill are also very deadly in many cases. Unlike most bacteria, viruses can only reproduce within living cells of other organisms. As a matter of fact, a viral particle without a host is actually referred to as a virion. And it only acts as a living organism when they enter the host cell. As a matter of fact, they stretch the definition of what is life itself. Viruses infect all types of hosts, from animals to plants, all the way down. to They can infect bacteria as well. So it is a pretty amazing thing what viruses do. They commonly mutate. They change on a regular basis. And they are a challenge because we don't have as many drugs like antibiotics don't treat viruses. They, if you use an antibiotic on somebody with Ebola or Zika virus or herpes virus or uh, hepatitis virus, 
uh, it will not cure it. it they will have essentially no effect other viruses that are common are common killers or influenza uh, rabies things like that maybe not so common with rabies uh, common childhood illnesses like chicken pox there are so many different viruses you, you can't hardly put them on a piece of paper Viruses are spread by mosquitoes and other vectors, airborne droplets and coughs and sneezes, contact with blood or other bodily fluids, maybe sexual transmission sometimes, injection of, uh, or ingestion, rather, of contaminated food and water will do it. If you eat or drink uh, contaminated food and water, you might get a virus. A normal immune system can often kill the infecting virus. However, some viruses evade these immune responses, and this results in chronic infections such as HIV or hepatitis C. There are antiviral drugs, but those are really in their infancy. There are some medicines for herpes virus, for example, and some others that may help with um, influenza if they're used early, but we're still sort of in the infancy of virologic pharmaceuticals, so it is an issue. Uh, there's another type of microbe that's a pathogen called protozoa. Uh, that's a, sort of a step up on the scale from bacteria and in that they exhibit sort of animal-like behavior, such as the ability to move. Many have a tail-like appendage called a flagella. They whip it around, and it gets them from place to place, not very uh, effectively or efficiently, but it does allow them to move somewhat. They're restricted to moist or aquatic environments, so therefore... Transmission is mostly by drinking contaminated water. Some are transmitted by animal vectors. The animal drinks water and then somehow passes it on to a person or another animal. And there are a lot of protozoan infections. Uh, infectious diseases that affect humans include things like malaria, giardia, some dysenteries, sleeping sickness, amoebiasis, all sorts of stuff. As a matter of fact, a common infection in the vagina is caused by a protozoan called trichomonas. Uh, protozoans are usually susceptible to treatment with certain antibiotics, luckily for us, such as uh, flagyl or metronidazole, also known as fishzole, in its veterinary equivalent. It's important to know that protozoans in aquatic environments oftentimes inhabit what appear to be absolutely pristine, absolutely clear, beautiful mountain streams in the backcountry you are not safe from having a significant uh, diarrheal disease as a result of drinking contaminated water. So anytime that you are out in the backcountry, don't forget that it makes sense to sterilize your water or at least disinfect your water as best as you possibly can. There are also fungi. Fungus, a fungus is a microorganism family that consists of yeasts and molds, and they can cause diseases as well. Uh, fungal infections most commonly infect skin, maybe the mucous membranes inside your mouth or the vagina, things like that. They can invade other areas. Fungus affecting the toes, for example, is athlete's foot, otherwise known as tinea pedis. Ringworm is another type of fungal infection on the skin. There are several internal fungal infections that occur in individuals with weakened immune systems. And anti Fungal medications are luckily pretty effective to treat most of these. They exist in oral form. They exist in creams and ointments. Myconazole, clotrimazole, these are some uh, popular ones that you can find. Things like Lamisil or Lotrimin, things like that. 
these are just some of the hazards that you'll face if you take responsibility for the medical well-being of others in times of trouble, dealing with bacteria, viruses, protozoa, fungi. Wow, it is a real challenge. But if you learn about them and you get some training and skills, you will keep it together even if everything else falls apart. Now, speaking of antibiotics, it's been a while since we've really investigated this particular one, and it is one of the most popular ones and one of the earliest ones. Let's, so let's go ahead and talk about this one. Luckily, when you have a podcast of your own, you can talk about whatever you want. That's the kind of freedom you have when you have your own show, guys. You can do whatever you want to. Read a few pages of the phone book if you want. Complain about how no one understands you. It's great for an old curmudgeon like me, I'll tell you what. Well, you might think that penicillin family drugs were the first to be used by the general public, right? Penicillin, most people consider as one of the first antibiotics. But another popular family of antibiotics called sulfonamides or sulfur drugs actually were on the general market even earlier. As a matter of fact, it was called the first miracle drug that was used in a lot of different settings. Sulfonamides, as a matter of fact, they deserve credit for saving tens of thousands of lives during World War II. It was so widely used that many soldiers' first aid kits came with the drug in either a pill or, most likely, in a powder form. You just poured it right onto an open wound to give it the best chance of preventing infection. Sulfonamides, these were first identified to have bacterial effects or antibacterial effects, I guess is better said, by a German scientist named Gerhard Domack, who evaluated certain dyes. He actually found a red dye that was produced by Bayer. Yes, that Bayer, the guys who make Bayer aspirin. And this apparently eliminated some bacterial infections in mice. And this dye, after some processing, became something called Prontosil. That was credited as being the first broad-spectrum antibiotic. It doesn't exist anymore, but it was the first broad-spectrum antibiotic. A broad-spectrum antibiotic eliminates infection by a lot of different microbes. Penicillin and an actual, uh, actually there was an even earlier arsenic-related drug that was used for syphilis, these were considered narrow-spectrum, which means that they were effective only against a very, very narrow range of bacteria. But uh, the sulfa drugs were the first that were able to actually kill a number of different bacteria. And the funny thing about Prontosil, uh, the first sulfa drug, is that it didn't show a lot of antibacterial action in test tubes. It actually was more noticeable on live subjects, so there was obviously some guinea pigs involved here, and I mean maybe human guinea pigs, that wound up giving these scientists a clue that this was indeed an effective antibiotic. Now, another interesting tidbit about sulfur drugs is that the active ingredient had been used by the dye industry for actually, for decades, for actually a number of decades. So, therefore, there was never a patented for this particular type of sulfur drug. Bayer actually had to share the dye, the, the Prontosil, with anyone who wanted to use it. And what happened was is that many different variations were developed, some of which were snake oil that contained toxic ingredients. As a matter of fact, one such elixir killed 100 people in 1937 
and that led to the enactment of the first serious oversight of pharmaceuticals. That was the Federal Food, Drug, and Cosmetic Act of 1938. Wow, that was a long time ago. Sulfonamides, they act to inhibit an enzyme that is involved in synthesis of an important part of bacterial DNA. The family of drugs, the family of sulfonamides or sulfa drugs, is what we call bacteriostatic. And a bacteriostatic drug does not directly kill the bacteria. But what it does instead is inhibit growth and prevent multiplications. If bacteria can't grow, if they can't multiply, well, they can't sustain the population that's needed to damage the body, of course, right? Healthcare providers have used these drugs to treat all sorts of stuff, urinary tract infections, ear infections, frequent or long-lasting bronchitis, bacterial meningitis, certain eye infections, certain pneumonias, traveler's diarrhea, who hasn't heard of that, and a number of other kinds of infections. But these drugs don't work for things like colds, flus, and other infections that are caused by viruses. Sure enough. Now, a commonly used sulfonamide, maybe the most commonly used one, is the combination drug sulfamethoxazole and trimethoprim. Now, put together, these drugs actually have a stronger effect against an infection or other condition than they would have if they used these two drugs alone. The fact that both of these things together will work strong, more strongly than if they were alone is called synergism. That's so they're synergistic these two drugs. They come in a number of different doses, uh, sulfamethoxazole 400 and uh, uh, trimethoprim 80 is one dosage that's popular, 800 uh, of sulfamethoxazole and 860 of trimethoprim, that's sort of a double strength dose. Uh, You'll find that in Bactrim and Septra in the United States. In Great Britain, they call it Cotrim or Cotrimoxazole. And a veterinary equivalent for you family medics out there for times of trouble is known as fish sulfa or bird sulfa. It comes in either aquarium or avian versions. So these are something that is, these are a good addition to your medical pack. Now, by the way, I just want to say that antibiotics and a lot of other drugs are combined into one product. So a lot of the cold medicines that you take are like Dayquil, NyQuil, they're usually combination drugs, and this is done because they will have a stronger effect against the infection or the symptom, whatever it is that you want to treat. So you'll see a lot of these, and we'll be talking about a number of different drugs that come in combination or that I want you to use in combination, even if they're not in the same pill. Now, sulfamethoxazole trimethoprim, that's effective in the treatment of a number of different things, upper and lower respiratory infections like bronchitis and pneumonia, kidney and bladder infections, very commonly used for that, ear infections in kids. It treats cholera, so actually you can knock cholera, nip cholera in the bud. Intestinal infections caused by E. coli and other bacteria that cause uh, dysentery like uh, Shigella. Uh, skin and wound infections, they do very well. Matter of fact, they even are effective against MRSA, methicillin-resistant Staph aureus, which is a big issue because of bacterial resistance nowadays. Uh, traveler's diarrhea, they work for, and they even work for skin conditions, things like acne. The usual dose, I mentioned that, 800 milligrams, 160 milligrams. I would take it twice a day if you're an adult for 
uh, most of the things that I just mentioned, you take it for about 10 days. Now, if traveler's diarrhea, probably don't need to use that as long. It depends how long you're going to be there, but five days is usually enough for that. The recommended dose for pediatric patients with urinary tract infections or, let's say, ear infections is much less, as you imagine, and is measured based on the weight of the child, 40 milligrams per kilogram, that's uh, one kilogram equals 2.2 pounds of sulfamethoxazole, and eight milligrams per kilogram of trimethoprim per 24 hours. So you take that dose, you split it in half, you give it in two divided doses every 12 hours and do that for 10 days. And this medication, by the way, is okay to use in children, but not in infants that are two months old or younger. Matter of fact, in rat studies, the use of this drug was seen to cause actually cause birth defects. Therefore, it is not used during pregnancy. And I would, honestly, between you and I, I wouldn't use it in infants under the age of two. Uh, now, not two months. I mean, two. I'd say two years. So this is what I would suggest. Uh, another sulfa drug, sulfadiazine, that's combined with silver. How about that silver? One of the earliest antibiotics before there were antibiotics. Uh, this is something that's combined with an antibiotic that is in the sulfa family, sulfadiazine, to make something called silvadine. And silvadine is a cream that's very, very useful for aiding the healing process in skin wounds and burns. And what you need to do is just cover the, the burn area or the wound completely twice a day. And so I think that's something that people don't know that. It's very commonly used in things like uh, bed sores as well. So if you have somebody that's bedridden, you have bed sores, silvadine may be useful in helping to prevent infection in those folks. Now, sulfonamides like sulfamethoxazole, trimethoprim, these are bird sulfur, the fish sulfur, these are well known, by the way, to cause allergic reactions in some individuals. Matter of fact, so common are these allergic reactions, they're almost as common as penicillin allergies. So I would say it's probably a good 3% are actually allergic to sulfa. Now, when they are, it'll look uh, a certain way. It'll, look, it'll manifest itself as rashes and hives. Maybe you may feel vaguely nauseous or you may vomit. There are actually worse reactions than that. It can cause blood disorders and can affect your skin, your liver, your pancreas. can cause damage to a number of different organs. And so those... People that start off with conditions that are uh, causing these organs to not be in the best of shape should avoid the drug altogether. So if you have liver disease, probably shouldn't be taking any kind of sulfa drug. Now, an allergy of sulfa dr uh, to sulfa drugs may be common. Remember, it is not the same allergy as to penicillin. Those people that are allergic to penicillin can take sulfa drugs, although it is possible to be allergic to both, I guess but they would be two entirely separate allergies. Now, the, the sulfa drugs, these are contraindicated in people that are hypersensitive to them, so always make sure, I'm repeating myself a little bit here, uh, in infants, two years, two years, I think, or less, some people say two months, but I say two years, during pregnancy and nursing mothers should not be taking sulfa drugs. Every drug has a side effect known as um, adverse reactions these days, and although these effects are rare, some people have had severe and life-threatening reactions that are not allergic, but are actually just adverse reactions that are exaggerated in the, if they take uh, sulfa drugs, that could include liver damage, serious blood problems, 
They can break down the outer layer of the skin in some people. A whole list of other things, as a matter of fact. Remember, you should always have some kind of reference if you're going to be the person that's going to be in charge of, med of treating people and to making sure people stay in medically good health. Uh, in times of trouble, you always should have a physician's desk reference of some sort that would help you. There is a book called The Physician's Desk Reference. I think now it is mostly in online form, but you can still find old copies, uh, a few years old of it. It's called The Physician's Desk Reference. It actually shows you pictures of pills so you can identify pills and capsules, and it also tells you what to use things for, what the dosages are, what the side effects and risks are and precautions, and even what drug interactions. So if you want to know if you can take this drug with that drug, it's there. You should get one of these, and you'll find them all over the place on eBay, even on Amazon, uh, in volumes that are a few years old, but still there hasn't been much change. And remember, you always have to follow everybody that you put on any medication for unusual signs and symptoms. You do not just say, here's this and forget about them. You always have to keep track of them and make sure that they're doing well and achieving a recovery from whatever infection they have on the particular antibiotic that you've used. Now, I want to say that something, we're talking a little generally again, but I, I do always find myself amazed that situations with disasters and so many people believe that they're invulnerable to these things. And, but the number of natural and man-made disasters that have occurred since we started, just since we started writing and talking about medical preparedness, that's too many to count. I mean, we've seen floods, tornadoes, tidal waves, heat waves, hurricanes, blizzards, all sorts of other events, that have volcano eruptions that have caused significant damage to property and certainly loss of life. Terrorist attacks, active shooter events, these have become more common. And you really have to know that internationally, we are on sort of fragile ground. I mean, tensions are elevated with countries like Russia, which who knows one day may lead to a major confrontation. China is practicing shooting down air, aircraft from these islands that they made in the South China Sea. Um, it is pretty amazing. It's pretty clear the world is full of potential disasters that can affect the lives and health of your family members, right? Now, but despite it all, people who prepare for the consequences of these happenings are looked upon with amusement. You know, the general population associates people that prepare for disasters with reality show characters that dress in camouflage and live in bunkers and, you know, walk around, always walk around armed to the teeth with several different weapons. In other words, they don't consider them to be normal folks. TV shows like Doomsday Preppers, Naked and Afraid, all this, all these really don't help. And I just saw another one, How the World Ends, which has a bunch of Looney Tunes. I think that's a Canadian show uh, that I'll tell you, wow. But recent events, I think, suggest that indeed there is a new normal. Now, hear me out. If you want to determine what the new normal is, let's start by defining what normal is. Let's say a guy with a microphone comes up to you and says, excuse me, sir, may I ask you a question? Are you a normal person? Well, that's a pretty simple question, right? Who the heck believes that they're not normal? You probably give the guy with the mic a strange look and walk on, maybe give him a, a dollar if you're 
charitable. But the truth is, is that the answer isn't quite as simple as it seems. What exactly is a normal person? The word normal has several definitions. Let's focus on a couple of them. One, normal is standard, average, or conforming to the group. And another thing, another definition of normal is sane. In other words, not insane. Normal people have certain characteristics that match these two particular, or at least the first, of these two definitions. You'd agree, of course, that normal folks need a certain level of organization in their life. They don't want a lot of clutter, so they make sure to keep no more than a few days' supply of food in the pantry. They wait until the gas tank is pretty empty before they refill it. They have a medicine cabinet with a few Band-Aids, maybe some aspirin, not much else in it. And whenever there's a crisis, whatever, whether it's national or personal, just losing a job is, is a pretty bad crisis, they see before them just a bump on the road. And when they stumble on that bump, they just pick themselves up, brush the dirt off, and continue on their way as if nothing has happened. They didn't learn any lessons from it. You know, a major storm is just a new story. Even if they're caught in it, it's just a chance to play some board games with the kids. Not really a bad idea by itself, honestly. But the truth is, is that there are just too many types of disasters that can occur, and they can occur anywhere. I mean, a active shooter event was just a news story to the people in this area where we are in South Florida until the Parkland shootings in February of 2018. So there is not... Despite that, I don't see any major concern from the average uh, South Floridian. And despite the risks that exist in the average person's daily life, they don't really take a lot of action, do they? They, they don't prepare for events like the ones that I've mentioned. And this is because normal people depend, quote unquote, depend on other people to resolve all of their problems. They pay taxes, so they believe the government will always step in and give them a helping hand whenever they need it. And the support can be in the form of, I don't know, food stamps in hard financial times, swift and emergency responses to national calamities, or not so swift sometimes, or intervention in areas of civil unrest. Most people believe wholeheartedly that help is always going to be on the way. But the greater the role of government in daily life, the more the population depends on it, and the less self-reliant they are. Now, Given the definitions of normal we mentioned earlier, this attitude certainly conforms to the first one, which is standard and conforming to the group. But is it the second one? Is it sane? Let's take the case of essential personnel for a municipality. This includes things like police officers and firefighters, EMTs, and all that. These are the emergency responders that normal folk expect to help them out in a crisis. And indeed, they do. They do awesome work, and I have the utmost respect but what would really happen if a really major disaster happened? Now, after Hurricane Katrina, surveys performed in several cities in police precincts and fire stations and emergency rooms, well, they asked them, would you report for duty if Hurricane Katrina had occurred in your area? Well, many public servants that we depend upon have indicated that they won't report for duty in the case of a truly serious disaster. That goes for doctors and nurses, paramedics and doc, uh, firemen and uh, police officers. And that, you may say, oh, oh, that's unthinkable. That can't possibly happen. Well, honestly, the professionals that we count on to rescue us in times of trouble have certain things. These are called children. These are called wives. These are called parents. And who do you think they're going to rush to protect in a truly horrendous emergency? You or their own families. 
Well, yeah, this is just a simple fact of life, folks. This is not a criticism of these guys. They are brave, and they keep us safe in normal times. And if I was the same person, I probably would. It probably would be very hard for me to do anything different. You ha- want to protect your family in times of trouble. In the aftermath of Hurricane Katrina, as a matter of fact, um, they they asked the the absentee officers. There was some absenteeism. What the reason wasn't their reason was specifically it was our family. You know, we had a family and we had to protect them. So, I mean, doing your duty is a normal expectation. Again, normal in quotes of people in our society, but it certainly isn't a sane expectation. You certainly shouldn't expect a law enforcement officer or a fireman or an EMT to abandon his family in true disasters. You would expect them to take care of them, and maybe you might be the second priority. So if normal and sane aren't the same thing in this scenario, how do normal people actually become sane? Well, by realizing that society can be very fragile. And there are indeed events that may occur to send the world into disarray. Once things happen that knock us off center, you knock us to the brink here, a, down, a downward spiral is going to make life pretty difficult. It's going to be a challenge for everybody, but it's going to be less so for those people that prepare beforehand for disasters. And that's a small minority, and we call them the preparedness community in the old days preppers. I don't even like using the word prepper anymore because it's been tainted by so much bad publicity from reality shows and other things like that. So I, I, I call us the preparedness community. I will not call us preppers anymore. And we are people who stockpile food and supplies for use in a truly significant disaster. We don't want to have to use them necessarily, or we use them in rotation with some of our other food and other things that we normally buy. But we are hoping for the best while preparing for the worst. We also take time to learn new skills. I have had so many people that have learned wound care and suturing and stapling and listening to how to listen uh, to lungs on stethoscope. Uh, it, it isn't funny. We've had just a lot of people who have done that. And these skills have been largely lost to most people. But they would be useful, I think you would agree, if a disaster took us off the grid. Now, you might think this is just common sense, but <laughs> folks like us are actually pretty few and far between. They may be, maybe 3% of the population, maybe a little bit more. But in times of trouble, these people are going to do better because they've accumulated all these skills, knowledge, and supplies. Things like uh, Nurse Amy's medical kits stored at doomandbloom.net. Another shameless plug. Sorry about that. So what type of events can cause a true collapse to happen Flu pandemics, terrorist attacks, major terrorist attacks, maybe a nuclear event, solar flares, natural disasters can do it too, economic collapse. These are just some of the possible calamities that can befall an area. It could be local, it could be regional, it could be nationwide, it could be worldwide. And I'll agree that the likelihood of any one of these life-changing occurrences might be pretty small. But what's the chance that you and your children will never be affected by one of these events over the course of a lifetime. How about their lifetimes, too? Let's add those in. Well, maybe not so small. So the bottom line is maybe there are going to be storm clouds on the horizon, maybe not. But the bottom line is to face any of these dangers with action, not disbelief. 
That's the thing. If you are prepared, you are indeed the normal person. You may not be conforming to the group, or at least the grand majority of your fellow citizens, but honestly, you are a lot more sane than they are, if you do. Remember to view all of these things as essentially insurance. You buy health insurance, and that doesn't mean you want to get sick. You buy life insurance, you certainly don't want to die. Being prepared is just insurance. Instead of paying money for something that isn't tangible, for some document or piece of paper, you're buying food, medical supplies, other things that will ensure that you and your loved ones will do okay regardless of what slings and arrows of life that life may throw at you. And believe me, the road to self-reliance is a long and winding one. It's going to take some of your time. It's going to take some of your energy. You've got to put some effort into it if you're going to become self-sufficient. It's going to take some money, too. And... The good news is that it may not have to take a lot of money. A 50-pound bag of rice, for example, if you accumulate some of that, it's still about 20-something bucks at the time of this podcast. So these are things that you should do. You shouldn't be eager. Some people think that we're eager for a calamity to occur. Believe me, that is... The wor- that's the last thing on my mind. I want nothing more than, than to die at age 100 with my grandchildren whispering in my ear, gee, Grandpa, what are we going to do with all these supplies? That's what I want. And I hope that that's what you want, too. You want to be prepared. You, and if you're going to be the medic, my motto and your motto should be do what you can with what you have where you are. This is all the time we have for this week's episode of the Survival Medicine Hour. I hope that you'll tune in every week as we talk about different topics for times of trouble. See you next time. Are you worried about how dangerous the world has become? In these days of terrorist attacks, natural disasters, or even a future collapse, you need to be medically prepared to keep your family safe. I'm Amy Alton, ARNP of store.doomandbloom.net, where you'll find an entire line of uniquely designed medical kits and supplies for when help is not on the way. For everything from individual first aid kits to the ultimate family bag, go to store.doomandbloom.net today. You'll be glad you did. You've been listening to the Doom and Bloom Hour with medical preparedness experts Dr. Bones and Nurse Amy. Check out our website at www.doomandbloom.net for hundreds of informative articles about survival medicine, gardening, natural remedies, medical supplies, and lots of other good stuff. Contact us, send your email to drbonespodcast at aol.com or use the contact form on the main page of the website. See you next week.